What's up, everybody? You're listening to Salah's Corner with the one and only Salah Muhammad. So another episode coming to you from the quarantine zone. Uh, We are still practicing social distancing. Uh, We're still uh, trying to bring you quality content and good conversations. And with that theme, uh, I brought an interesting conversation uh, of an individual I met through a different connection. Uh, His name is Ken Good. He's on the board of directors for the professional uh, board of bondsmen out of Texas. And we had an interesting discussion on bail reform, what true bail reform looks like uh, from his perspective, at least, and how we can really go about tackling an issue of systemic criminal justice issues that plague particularly people of color. And, you know, throughout this conversation, I think it's it's goes without saying that there are different areas that we did not agree. Um, But I held back on any criticism and high critique just to get an understanding of his perspective. And I think that goes with establishing dialogue with someone who you disagree with. It's very important to understand how to establish that dialogue first before you try to poke holes in their beliefs and their theories and uh, try to figure out how you can actually work together, especially when you agree in different areas. And I think in today's age, that is incredibly important. When we talk about improving society, when we talk about improving the quality of life and people who are plagued with these systemic issues. Uh, So Uh, Think about that as you uh, go into this conversation and see if you can't find different ways where you may possibly agree. Here at Salah's Corner, I am always looking to connect with new people, hear new perspectives and share new stories. And right now I want to hear from you. Email me at realtalk at salahscorner.com and we can get your story featured on our next episode. If you don't mind, why don't we uh, start from the top from your background, and uh, we'll go from there. Okay. I grew up in a small town, farming town, peanut farming, and there was 24 people in my class in high school. Four of us went to college, and I had an interest in going to law school. My mom and I used to watch Perry Mason together late at night, mm-hmm. and so I, I I didn't go directly to, college, to law school. I, I taught high school for a couple of years, but both my parents were public school teachers. I got a master's degree and then I went to law school, joined a firm in Tyler and practiced with the same group of guys for 20 something years, learned how to practice law. And during that time, I represented a few bondsmen who had some issues. And after that, you know, word spread and, you know, just developed into a practice where I, I have a large clientele for, you know, bondsmen or insurance companies who have agents who write bonds and have developed that practice over the last 15 to 20 years. And you wrote this article on bail reform and what true bail reform looks like. And, you know, talk about, I know here in Philadelphia, that's one of the biggest things right now is how do we reform our bail system for a community that is severely underprivileged and really sometimes can't afford bail. Some have proposed that we remove the, you know, the costs related to, to bail reform. What is your ideal for reforming bail so that it works? Well, you know, I think we should start with what is it that we're seeking to do with true bail reform? Mm. Are we trying to, I mean, I think the goal should be improve the criminal justice system. And we need to do a better job at getting cases through the system, getting justice for victims. And as a side part of that, we need to make sure that we don't take advantage or even forget about the poor. They they need to be protected. I think the problem that we're having is that we're putting a, 
what I consider to be one of the elements of criminal justice reform and making that the the, the sole focus, mm-hmm. that we need to focus on fairness. And as a result, when we do that, we're actually making the system much worse because we're creating situations where the criminal justice system really can't function. People are not showing up for court. I mean, I know we have issues with people who say they cannot afford a bond, but like here in Texas, affordability is one element that we consider in setting bond. It's not the only element. It's not, it's not the thing that determines whether you get out of jail, because if you do that, then you're turning your criminal justice system into a voluntary process. You have to agree to come for there to for the court to mete out punishment because you know if you're too poor to get a ride then it's not your fault if you don't go to court if you're right. too poor if you don't have childcare it's not your fault if you if you didn't have childcare and you can't go to court and and we then make it so much relative I mean so relative that why do we ha- even have a criminal justice system? Hmm. So it, it sounds kind of like you're saying or, or you're making the argument really that we need almost criminal justice reform before we even tackle the bail issue. Well, I think that I think we're I think that's really what our advocates are asking for with are seeking they're seeking criminal justice reform and that we shouldn't have punishment for certain crimes because you know there's uh there's an explanation for why they were doing that and and look there are many social ills. There are schools that are failing in inner cities, there's drug use, there's fa- uh, that's increasing. We have families that are failing and and those are substantial problems, but I don't think bail reform is the place to address those situations. Hmm. Bail, I mean, the the job of bail is just to get somebody to court, so the court can have a hearing or have a trial to determine uh, guilt or innocence. The better an improvement to the criminal just or a, a, an improvement to the bail system would be get the cases through quicker. To uh, and so that the cases are resolved, so they know whether they're going to be punished or whether they're going to go free. I mean, that's what an improvement to the bail system is. I think our friends are using the, the, the cloud of bail reform to really push a bigger criminal justice reform. And I don't, I mean, we, I don't think the bail industry would even oppose a top-down review of do we really need these issues to be crimes anymore in the future. Hmm. That's, that's interesting. You know, I, I, I often have uh, discussions with folks on, getting you know building coalition building in a sense you know, you know we th- there are advocates for criminal justice reform all over the country but coming from different avenues and coming from different backgrounds you know here in Philadelphia bail reform is a focal point like you mentioned to addressing a larger systemic issue of criminal justice and not seeing the benefit of possibly working with others who who also want to see criminal justice reform, but finding different ways to tackle that problem. It, it, that really just begs the question as, you know, obviously we won't solve the the problems of criminal justice here in this conversation, but what are some of the things that you we should consider when we talk about criminal justice reform? Because that's I feel that's what this really boils down to, because for a lot of folks, before they are introduced to the bail system, it's it's some of the structural failures in our criminal justice system that's putting in, in that place to begin with. Well, we have so many things that we should be discussing and we should we've been needing to discuss for decades, you know, you know, because I think a lot of people would say we have a, a, a problem with a certain race 
or with certain races have bigger problems. And I, I think we should look at it differently. I think it's an inner city crime problem. I think it's where all the other races are, or other races have that can afford to have abandoned the inner cities and that the ones that are left, which is our high crime areas, is because, you know, they're faced with failing schools, so they can't get a good education. They're failing family, so they can't get a good example at home. And they're, you know, they're looking at drugs around them everywhere they go. And so they're having uh, drug issues that are dramatically increasing. And in our inner cities, we're not doing very much or we're not doing enough to address those situations. All we're doing is leaving them uh, to, to percolate and bake and get worse. And then we arrest them when they, when they violate a crime. How do we address those things? You know, I, I, I think I don't think it's really true, but there used to be a myth that we would uh, determine the number of uh, jail beds we need based on, you know, third grade reading proficiency or third grade dropout rates. I don't really think we have dropout rates in third grade because that would <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, be uh, against the law. Right. But reading proficiency, you know, that that I mean, if there was a kernel to truth to that. Then we should be spending a lot more on on education and on on supportive programs for families. I think that those are things. You know, the the biggest mistake we make in the criminal justice system is that we are afraid to make any show any discretion. You know, mm-hmm. if you go and get a if you're in prison and you get a high school diploma, that's probably the biggest determining factor over whether you will come back to prison. Mm-hmm. And and you should be shown compassion for showing self-improvement. But if you have you seen in all this bail reform, especially during the COVID-19 crisis, we're not doing any of that type of review. We're just in mass releasing people of the same, you know, of, of the same category. And we, we should be looking for rewarding people who want to become productive members of society and making and giving them uh, a, a leg up and a, a chance to change and come back uh, and not come back into the system. And we should be not be giving that same compassion to people who are thumbing their nose at us. And when they get out, 37 minutes later, commit a new crime. I, 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 I completely understand the point you're coming from because that, that you, you know, in order to address the problems with, within the system itself, right, in order to address why people can't afford bail, you have to address what introduced them into the criminal justice system to begin with. 100% agree. However, when we have systems in place that don't make that easy, do we then abandon those folks that have been introduced to the criminal justice system when they could have possibly been guilt free of the crime that was committed, but now have to go through this issue of I can't post bail. I can't get out of jail. I've then lost my job. I've lost child care. I, you know, I have all of these other issues that start to take hold in my life because of. Mm-hmm. the way our bail system is also set up. And so, yes, going back, if I was never introduced to the criminal justice system through through different means, sure, we can address it then. But at some point, I'm, our, I'm here. And where is my saving grace in that moment? Well, I'm going to come at this a little bit different. I'm go- and I hope to surprise you because I'm going to argue that the reforms that are being advocated by the bail reform movement are actually making the situation worse. The situation, the exact situation you're talking about. And, and the reason why is what is the problem in your area? What is the problem? The problem is, is not, I mean, you do have poor people, but the problem is how do you process 
and large numbers of people through the local jail quickly, cost efficiently. And how do you figure out who's who? How do you figure out which one needs a little extra time? The reform that's being advocated by the bail reform movement have actually make it, made it impossible to do that because uh, they've gotten rid of bail schedules. The bail schedules, I mean, you can say what you are about. They, they are, uh, they're not fair, but they allow people who can afford to, set a, uh, to pay for a bond to, to do that. They avoid going into the jail. And so the ones that are left, are the ones that need the extra time to determine, okay, why are you here? Do you need to be diverted for a drug issue, a mental issue, or are you claiming poverty? We're, we're making, where the bail reform advocates, I think, have created chaos is they've gotten rid of the way to divert large groups of people away from the big population areas, and they've dumped this whole system on magistrates that can't handle it. And so they've been forced to just release everyone. Hmm. And that is a recipe for chaos because you don't know who's who. You can't keep up with them. And nobody comes back to court and they just commit more crime. That's the lesson of Houston. It's the lesson of New York. And New York was so bad, even during the COVID-19 crisis, a majority of the legislature voted to uh, repeal or or pull back many of their reforms, Hmm. roll back. Hmm. Let, let's let's talk about that moment, because I think that brings us nicely to what we're experiencing today. And so many uh, governors are and, you know, so many activist groups are calling for a mass release of a lot of prisoners. And, and, and I, I understand the fear on both sides. Right. You know, there's a fear that crime will rise. There's a fear that uh, people won't uh, answer to the crimes that they've committed because, you know, essentially they will just go AWOL. But then there's also a fear of mass contamination of COVID-19, not just in the prison population, but through through guards who are then bringing that home to their families and bringing it back to the communities. What, what's your take on how we should be focusing on this problem given COVID-19? Well, I think you set out the problem really, really well. And I think I would, the only thing I would add to it is you've also got the county's fears that they're going to be paying for ventilators for inmates for, you know, it looks like if you're going to be a ventilator, you're going to need one. It's going to be for a couple of weeks. And that's very expensive for a right. county to have to pay for. So you've got the perfect storm. And and so what should we, we be doing? Because there's a new study that's uh, a new article that just came out in the last few days that said in four states they tested numerous inmates, thousands of inmates in the prisons and found out that 97% of them were asymptomatic. They had no symptoms. Mm. So, I mean, you could turn that completely around and say, are we releasing large groups of people that are infected and have no symptoms into the the population? And so it's a, it's a damned if you do damned if you don't situation. And so I, I question, you know, we have jails are always fighting infection. There, you know, we have, you know, they had N one, they had the H one N one virus, they had SARS in our history. You know, they're always fighting tuberculosis in prisons or other transmitted diseases. But but viruses are always being things that you're on the lookout for. Uh, Chickenpox is a problem in jails and in prisons that they're always on the lookout for and fighting. And they have protocols for following that. 
I think that the problem that I've seen is that I think we're we're reacting with fear and also being bullied a little bit by our advocates for change who see this as their golden opportunity to push for what they wanted. And I think they've gotten a lot of it, and not so much in Texas, but in other areas. I mean, look at Washington State, which was one vote away from releasing uh, a serial killer mm-hmm. from the Washington Supreme Court because of what I would argue is fear. We have to make decisions that are thought out. And and the biggest problem for any criminal justice system is when you release somebody and, and their case isn't over with, is how do you get them back? And New York and Harris County, the places we watch, if you're just going to release them, then you've got at least a 50% failure to appear rate. That does a lot of damage to the system because every case has to be put on hold where they fail to appear. And a lot of times, the only way they come back is by committing a new crime. So we're, we're you know, doing substantial damage to the criminal, criminal justice system when it finally comes back online. And we don't realize, and the ramifications of these decisions are going to be felt for a long, long time. And my biggest thing that I'm pushing for is we should be making decisions that take those things into consideration. And I don't think we have. I don't think we have it all. Let me let's talk about what has happened in Pennsylvania. So Governor Tom Mm -hmm. Wolf has ordered the release of over 1,500 prisoners, I believe, with a focus on them being non not being convicted of non violent offenses. Right. So if you are a violent offender, you will not be a part of that segment of the population that's uh, possibly to be released. And then also, if you were. I believe it was nine months. If you were set to be released or you are had a parole hearing within the nine months, the next nine months, you uh, may possibly also be set to be released. Is Do you think that that takes more into consideration as far as who we're releasing or back into society? Would you take that a step further and looking at individual cases before, you know, setting a number? on the number of prisoners to be released. What What is your uh, critique of that approach? Well, first of all, I, I, I critique, I, I don't have a very good opinion about when they say nonviolent offenders because they always say it's nonviolent offenders. And, you know, we've had we've had that issue in, in Texas where they, they start out by saying it's nonviolent. And then, like in California, they downgrade a bunch of felonies to misdemeanors and call them no longer nonviolent. I, I think we should have started with an individual review of of people. And I like even the nine month thing that people are set within the next nine months. I like that better. But I would I would attach on top of it an individual review. People could be doing that from home. What's what's the assessment of the people that are taking care of these people? Have they shown an ability? I mean, what if somebody, you know, here's the situation we've had. They've done a, a categorical release of people that fit in certain parameters. Well, what if they don't even have a place to go? Hmm. I mean, we're just releasing them, and we're telling them, well, to observe your six feet distancing requirements, even though you have no place to go. We're we're making those quick decisions on categories because we're trying to figure out how to meet some goal when we we should be relying upon the the inside data uh, and looking for people who show and have family connections and that that will have places to uh, shelter in place at and who are not going to be sitting, you know, wondering what havoc they can create. Uh, I think I think we should be spending more time doing exercising our compassion on an individual basis instead of a block basis. I, I really do. 
I, I, I agree, actually. I, I think we, if we approach this, like you said, with compassion, I think it allows for a much more nuanced approach instead of a blanket system that, you know, many fall under the umbrella, even though they may not necessarily fit directly. You know, not only does it endanger possibly releasing folks back into society, but then also allowing folks to feel helpless once they do release them. Because, like you said, do, we, do they actually have somewhere to go? Do I have a home to go to once I'm released from prison? Do I have a family or, or a society to go back to? Or am I being released to ultimately uh, commit more crime and end up back where I started from? Well, I'm sure like in y'all's area, I'm sure they're doing the same thing they're doing here is they're not arresting for certain offenses right now. That's correct. And that... so you, you, have to, you, you have to be real careful when you're releasing people, when you're, you're not, when you're not doing an individual assessment of them, you're going to be releasing people who are, looking at this and going, okay, here's the list of things I can do and I will not be rearrested. And, and then you couple with that, you know, you've got, you know, family issues where, you know, people have been told to shelter in place with the people who are tormenting them. And you've seen family violence, you know, grow just across the world during this time. And, and when somebody gets out for compassion, they can pin a new crime, then compassion should end but that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing they're just being released again and again. That You actually brought me right to my, my next section, actually, which was, you know, like you, like you said, we are doing that here in Philadelphia where our commissioner has declared she's not going to be arresting for nonviolent offenses. They will be stopping um, and asking those individuals, you know, processing them and then release and having uh, warrants issued for them after the stay-at-home orders have been lifted. Do you think that also, you know, when that first rolled out here in Philadelphia and in a lot of other cities, you know, there was a huge public outcry on the fear that, you know, crime would rise, but it's been the opposite, really. Nonviolent offenses have dropped dramatically. Calls to 911 regarding those have dropped dramatically. There's a lot of folks that, that really talk about how, you know, if you have less of a police presence, crime will rise, especially in urban communities, especially in high poverty areas. And it almost speaks to the opposite of that. What, what, what's your take on, on just, just how we are, are approaching this from a criminal justice reform standpoint? Well, I think we have to be very careful when we talk about crime has gone down, because mm-hmm. I think what you're going to of course, crime is going down if police is not, you know, not arresting people. I mean, the question is, what about reports? Are reports of crime going down? You know, like in New York City, in the last couple of weeks, there was a, a, an article saying that reports of business, crime on business is up 75 percent, which makes sense. The, the places that are empty are the businesses because people are sheltering in place. And so I, I think that there's a certain amount of crime. I think you have to agree that has gone down because we have people that are not moving around. But I don't think that we can just say that crime has, has gone down. I, I think that what we can say is reports of crime have gone down. And we're going to find out as people start moving around how much, whether crime has gone up or not. And I think domestic violence cases is an exception. And the longer we go, and I think that's one of the pressures on reopening, the longer we go, you know, we've got mental health issues. People are just got stir crazy. They got cabin fever. I mean, I've seen it in my own family where you just want to get out and your own mental health is required. There was a story the other day where someone went to a local uh, police officer and he said, I just 
kill my dad because wow. they were sheltering together. And so I can, you know, in our area, we're seeing murders going up. Domestic violence is going up across the world, not just uh, in Texas, because, you know, these are people sheltering in place with their tormentors. Uh, and I think that's going to get worse. I think that's part of the reason why you're seeing pressure to reopen. And so I think it's a, a fallacy to say, and I don't think that, that I would agree that crime is going down. I think that reports of crime absolutely are going down. But you also, you, you, it's almost contradictory. And you'll see in one paper, crime is going down. You see another crime, reports of crime is going up. And how do you, how do you reconcile them? And I think you reconcile them with, of course, crime is going down because they just got through saying they're not going to arrest people. So arrests are down. But what about reports? And then uh, let's see what happens. Uh, over time and, and over time has not been good. Hmm. My, my final question, going back to, to bail reform and essentially your, your, what it feels like your argument is that we need more folks. We need more people in a system deciding on the intimate details of individuals when they're introduced to our criminal justice system, right? When you're arrested, we need to figure out what the root causes of what's happening as far as like why you may not be able to show up for courts, why you can't afford to, to pay your bail or bond, and having a much more nuanced approach to individual cases as far as a system-wide complete reform of how we approach bail reform. And I think that's the same, not just on bail, but on criminal justice, on how we're releasing prisoners during COVID-19, and then also how we are policing folks and how we are pursuing arrests during this time as well. Is that the argument that you're making? I think that on the criminal justice reform, I would agree. I think on the on bail reform, I'm different. I, and the reason why I'm different is, you know, I look at what has worked in the past and what is what what, what have we ever tried. And I, what I'm arguing is just releasing everybody does not work. Hmm. And in our large population areas, you can't individually magistrate everybody. Our friends on the other side said that they had developed this risk assessment. It was going to be the panacea. It was going to solve everything. We could get rid of the bail industry. And in the last eight months, the bottom has fallen out of that. The research scientists have said, do not use risk assessments for criminal justice reform. The, the largest technology companies in the world have said, don't use a risk assessments for, for criminal justice or bail reform because they're good at uh, determining what groups do, but they're terrible about predicting what an individual would do. And I'm a great example of that. Grew up in a small town on a farm. You know, the, the risk assessment, the group would predict that I would never go to college. I would never go to get a master's. I would never go to law school. Mm -hmm. But it was completely wrong with me on the individual basis. And so if we can't use that, what are we left with? Of everything that's been tried, it's only releasing everybody. And that's been proven to just be a fiasco. So we have to go back and look at what works. Bail schedules allow us to get get out the people of the system that can afford to so we can focus our time and energy on what to assess mental health issues, drug issues, and poor people to determine what they can and cannot do and what they need to uh, address their issues. And, and we need to be able to call out people so that we can spend our time on those groups. And I think we need to be laser focused on ways to do that. And we, and that's what bail reform should focus on. We, we don't, we're not, we, if we're trying to set up a system that is just fair to everybody, that means that you're arguing that everybody should just be released. 
that means your criminal justice system will shut down because it can't operate. You're going to have a 50% failure to appear rate, which I think is your your area. You've had periods where you've seen that, and and I think you just uh, don't realize that you, you can't get justice for victims, and that's not uh, bellable. I, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of folks that will argue that that that's a, that's a tactic that they're looking towards, right? Is to to have a have a mass release because of how the criminal justice has has treated poor people, has treated minorities and and black people and other people of color. You know, what what do you say to that as being a tactic of bringing down the criminal justice system? Well, I think that that is the consequence of of just releasing everybody. I mean, look, the the bail, the purpose of bail is you get out of jail, and that you agree to come to court at any time there's a need for a hearing. That's really all that we, you know, the bonding industry does is we get people to court. We do it very well. That's the reason why we've been around for 200 years. If all we did was take people's money, we wouldn't be in business still. We have the highest level of supervision. We remind people when they need to go to court. We go get them if they because they don't have a ride. And if they fail to miss, miss uh, if they miss court, we go get them and encourage them to come back and get them back as quickly as possible. Sometimes because of the relationship we have with them, the trust they have with us, they will come back quicker. If you just say, well, we're going to release everybody. The, the story of New York is that if you just release everybody, then you have no accountability. It's really just a, a concept of, are we going to have a system of accountability uh, or, or, or do we have to have blanket compassion and we, we can't ever end our compassion? If someone is a repeat offender, if they fail to show up for court, then we have no choice. If you're just releasing everybody, then you can't end your compassion. If you, so here's my best example. We show you compassion. We give you a PR bond. And three weeks later, you don't show up for court. Okay, well, what do we do? We've issued a warrant. He gets rearrested. He comes back into the system. Do we give him another PR bond? He has shown he has not been successful. What if it's the second time that he's failed to appear? Do we give him a third mm-hmm. PR bond? He has shown or she has shown that they are not successful on that system. They need something additional, more supervision. But on the mass release uh, program that's been advocated by our friends on the other side, you have no option. You only have to continue mass release, continue mass release. And that's where we have a problem. Like officers in New York who are saying, we're not doing any law enforcement. We're arresting the same people every day because we arrest them, take them to jail, they get released, and then we start all over the, the next day. It's the same group. And so low-level career criminal, crim, uh, criminals learn how to just take advantage of the system. And that causes problems to the criminal justice system as a whole, because look at Harris County. They've been doing this for about a year, and their case, numbers of pending cases for misdemeanor courts have doubled. Hmm. Now, criminal cases, uh, the number of pending cases can't double every year. That means cases are getting resolved, because every year on average, the same number of people get arrested, and then you hopefully resolve the same number of cases. Well, that means double the cases were filed than what was resolved. And if you have two or three years of that, then the whole system shuts down and then you have chaos. And then, and that's what, that's where we see the system going 
if you just have a let's release everybody approach. That's why we say call out the people that can call out as many people that you can fit into categories so that the magistrates, the system, can focus their compassion on uh, the limited number of people that are left that they can say, why are you still here? And we have a lot of different suggestions on how to keep track of that. But but just mass release, I, I mean, it hasn't worked so far anywhere uh, where it's been advocated. Hmm. Ken Good, uh, Board of Directors for Professional Bondsmen of Texas. Thank you. I'd like to invite you back so we can have a, a deeper conversation on, on criminal justice reform, if you'd like to come back. Oh, absolutely. I've, I've always said we, we are more than welcome to talk to anybody. I believe we have the winning argument, and I don't have any problem defending it, <laughs> but I always try to be respectful, and I, but, but I can, can be convinced, too. I mean, we're not willing, we're always willing to find a middle ground, but, yeah. but we'll talk to anybody. We, we love, and you know, I've enjoyed talking with you today. You've been very nice. Thank you. I, I think, you know, I, I do have some folks that are a part of the Philadelphia bail uh, reform here in the city of Philadelphia. So if you're interested, maybe uh, the three of us can get on a call together and, and really have a, a heartfelt discussion uh, about this, because I, I do think, one, I think it's important to always converse with people you disagree with, because that's actually how progress is made. And like you said, finding that middle ground is, is so much more important than just kind of sticking to your sticking to your, your gun points. So I thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, yeah, I would love it. Absolutely love it. All right. Thank you, Ken. I appreciate you. Well, thank you very much. And I hope you and your family stay safe. Likewise. Thank you very much. Once again, I want to thank Ken Good, uh, Board of Directors of Professional Bondsmen of Texas, for joining me in a uh, conversation on bail reform, uh, which kind of led to criminal justice reform and his beliefs on how we should be tackling this systemic issue. And again, you know, this this place, we try to engage in conversations with people we disagree with, not to. Uh, knock down our arguments, not to have a debate, but to engage in dialogue. And I think that is, um, you know, I can't say it's enough. It's incredibly important. You know, it's very easy to discuss things with people who you agree with because they agree with you. It doesn't offer a challenge. It doesn't offer a critique. It doesn't offer uh, you to think critically about anything because you already agree. I think it's much more important to have conversations and dialogue with people who you don't agree with, come with it from a different perspective uh, and who offers um, an an outsider's take in a sense on how we can tackle an issue, especially when we both agree on what the issue was. And I think as we got to the root of the conversation, we both had some agreement that criminal justice needs to be reformed, particularly in communities who are plagued with poverty who are plagued with failing schools, who are riddled with drugs, um, who are uh, affected by broken homes. I think that's incredibly important. And I think Ken and I both agree to that. I think fundamentally uh, we may disagree on how we get there, but that's a conversation for another day. Uh, feel free to email me at realtalk at com. I want to hear your takeaways and your feedback on how we should reform criminal justice, how we should reform our bail system if we need any reforms at all. Um, and feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. So Lost Corner is recorded out of the quarantine zone right now as we try to get through this pandemic. Um, produced by producer extraordinaire Bree Wilson. I want to thank you always for tuning in. And until next time, peace, y'all.